I'd like to welcome to the stage Ritesh Batra. Welcome. Welcome to BAFTA. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, thank you, everyone, for being here. We've got about um, half an hour to talk about the film. Um, I'll, as ever, I'll get things going, ask a few questions, but of course, um, very keen to hear any questions you may have, so please do think of anything you'd like to ask uh, Ritesh. Just a very quick um, introduction. The Sense of an Ending is uh, Ritesh Batra's second feature film. Uh, his first was 2013's The Lunchbox, um, which, was, uh, which premiered at Cannes in 2013 and then was nominated for a BAFTA for Best Film Not in the English Language in 2015. Yeah, which we did not win. <laughs> it's implied. It's, it's nominated. Um, thank you very much for um, the sense of an ending. I think um, hopefully people agree it's a particularly poignant, sensitive and um, mature film. Uh, in many ways. I think um, uh, and a very intelligent adaptation of Julian Barnes's novel as well. Um, I'd like to begin, how did you first come to the, the story of, uh, of Tony Webster? Obviously, as I said there, it's Julian Barnes's novel. It's been adapted for the screen by the playwright Nick Payne. Was it, was it Nick Payne's script you first encountered, or was it, or was it Julian Barnes's novel? Uh, no, I read the novel when it first came out in 2011. And it was one of those books that I always carried with me. You know, I, I moved a lot during those years. I was living in New York, then I moved to Bombay to make Lunchbox. And, uh, but uh, I just loved that novel. And uh, after Lunchbox came out, suddenly uh, people started asking me uh, what I was interested in doing next. Before that, obviously, nobody was interested in talking to me. Uh, but uh, I always said, you know, I would like to adapt this novel or look into it. And then I looked into it, and uh, the BBC was doing an adaptation of it already. Uh, and then I forgot about it because I tend to write my own material, write my own uh, scripts. So uh, uh, I thought, well, it's that, that ship sailed. Uh, but then about a year or a year and a half after that, it came to me as a screenplay, as an offer to direct. And I was, of course, very honored, and then I read it immediately. And then uh, I was very struck by the work Nick had done on it because just as a lover of, of the book, a very passionate lover of the book, uh, I, if I had adapted it, I wouldn't have been able to take the liberties he took. Not that he doesn't love the book, I'm sure he does. But he had done some very ingenious things, like you know, uh, developing Susie's character, the camera shop. So he had actually made a true adaptation. And then I met him and we spoke and I thought, you know, this would be a great person to collaborate with. And if there was a writer that I'd like to work with, you know, he's, it, it was his first film that he wrote, and it was my second feature. And I thought, well, there's going to be a very collegial, nice relationship. And we can sort of stumble through this together and, and you know, at least have a nice time. Yeah. Uh, so that's why I, I got into it for love of the book and, and, you know, for love of the things that Nick had done. Mm. I mean, it's, it's, it's partly, it's about many things, but partly it's a story about versions of stories. I mean, we see, we see, Tony's story, and I'm sure we interpret it ourselves. He's thinking about his own life story, reinterpreting it, re-seeing it. What would your Julian Barnes had a version of this, his own version of the story. Nick Payne, his own version. What, what would you say was your version of this when you came, when you started thinking about well, you know, with, what you were going to bring to it? With, both with the book and the movie, what really struck me about about this was that, well, I shared a room with my granddad growing up. Uh, you know, the la first 18 years of my life and the last 18 of his. Because that's what, in India, you take your parents in as your kids are growing old, or your kids are growing up, your parents are growing older. It all happens under one roof. And uh, I was always struck by my grandfather's, you know, I, 
I like to think I have an, a view, and I just made another movie actually since this movie called Our Souls at Night. We are editing it now with, with Robert Redford and Jane Fonda. And so I don't know, I, I like to think that I have, I don't know, I, insight is a very big word, but a, a view into that part of life because of my granddad. And, you know, because he, I used to be trying to study and he used to be lying down, you know, in bed behind me and just banging on about things that happened 50 years ago. And I used to say, well, all those people are dead. It doesn't matter, but it did matter, you know. So this, how elusive the sense of closure was, you know, for him, and still it was so precious. I was very struck by that. And so I was very struck by this idea of making a movie about something so elusive. You know, like Tony's quest is so elusive. And how do you even define it? Um, and that's why I got into it, for, for you know, for figuring that out. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you tell a story about... You know, because in movies, they tell you in film school and after and everything you read about, about how a screenplay is written about a character wants something, you know, he wants something. And then over the course of time, he discovers that he needs something else, you know, just to put it simplistically. And, and I don't know, what does he even want? What does he need? You know, and, and that, figuring that out and keeping it palpable and keeping it alive, I was very interested in that challenge. Uh, and I think so was Nick. I want to ask you about the role, your, your, your view of time in the film. I mean, it's simplistically, there's two time periods, but it's much more than a... I think if you described it as a film set, partly set in the present, partly set in the past, it's a very simplistic way of describing the interaction of those periods. How, how would you describe how you saw those two time periods working against each other? Um, yeah, or hopefully with each other. Um, yeah, sorry, with each other. But, no, against each other is fine, too. Like, <laughs> Next week. <week's. laughs> yeah. Uh, but... You know, I, I don't know, it was just about the times, you know, it's just, I, I feel like while making this movie, especially because now I have some distance from it, uh, and uh, because I have shot something else, so my mind has been invested in that, and now I can look back at this. And I often think about while we were making this movie, what was really going on. You know, the, there's such a flatness to cinema. It's just this flat screen, and everybody watching it, even if it's 3D, it's just three dimensions, it's pretty flat. As opposed to when you're reading a book, which is already a deep piece of work, and then there's your brain that brings all these dimensions to it. And that experience, you know, how do you mirror that or match that in a movie? You just can't, you can't. But you can, in some ways you can try to get close to it, uh, but mostly I think you just have to do your own thing. So when, I got Nick's script, and I think largely this is what Nick wrote. Of course, it got embellished a lot by the actors and by me, and during the editing process, we lost a lot of scenes. We restructured scenes while shooting it. That's just the usual process of making a movie, whether you write it or somebody else writes it. But this interaction between the past and the present, I think, as we got closer to making the movie, it just got more fluid. So somewhere along the way, once we were talking, because I was very concerned while getting into it, about the fact that these are not traditional flashbacks. You know, you're leaving for five minutes to go to school, you're leaving for eight minutes to go to the Ford's house, you're leaving uh, to, for this whole breakup chapter, you know. And then you, you come back to the present day and you expect an audience to be engaged in Tony's quest, which is pretty amorphous in the first place. Um, so Nick and I would always talk about that, and we were in New York because he was working on a play and I was passing through. And I, well, I suggested to him that, well, why don't we have Tony walk through that party? 
And then we were just joking about it. It was really a joke about embellishing, you know, a great British novel with flourishes of Latin American literature. And, uh, and then, then it became a serious discussion. And then we started talking about how do we make this more fluid. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's no, not such a formalistic thing, you know, a flashback. It's a very tenuous thing. It can be very, you know, a, char a character can go into his flashback. Sometimes he doesn't, sometimes he does. But as he gets more invested in, in, in this quest, he goes more and more often. Uh, so we started, really started thinking about this cinematically as we got closer to the shoot, because you know, you have to, because you have to shoot this thing. Uh, but the present and past, even during the editing, it took us a while to figure out the rhythm. For those of you who read the book, you know that there's some great passages in the book, things that Adrian says mostly about history and time and, and also Julian writes these things. I don't want to speak for him, but in my mind, he always wrote these, those things to build up Adrian's, you know, uh, estimation in Tony's eyes. But when we got into the movie, we, found, we had lots of scenes in the school that, we, that are not in the movie, in the past. And in, in the movie while shooting, we found that, you know, the way that Billy Howell, who plays the young Tony, looks at Adrian, was doing the job of those scenes. So during the editing process, we had to get rid of all that. So finding that balance between the past and the present was a, took us a long time. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a bit about the cast. I mean, I think Jim Broadbent is fantastic in the film. He's, you build up, certainly early on, you build up a sense of his character just through very small moments, whether he's interacting with the character played by Oliver Mortman in the shop, or he's, he's ordering food in a restaurant, or interacting with the postman. It's, you need an actor who can, who can play those those small, mm. those, those, those small moments in an incredibly meaningful way. I want you to talk about why you landed on Jim Broadbent and what you think he brings to the, well, it's the a, character. The thing is, Jim has such an... It's not a Tony Webster, both in the book and the movie. He's not very, I don't know, what they call a likable character or easy to hang your hat on. You know, it's kind of a... I don't know, kind of a... In, in American slang terms, I don't know, a loser or nobody or just, you know, a regular, ordinary person. Uh, and not a very likable one, but uh, Jim is so endearing inherently. You know, it's hard not to love Jim Broadbent. So always felt that Jim would just play this in, in not a standard issue, curmudgeonly way. You know, just just with his presence. And of course, he's a very sophisticated actor, so he brings a lot more to it. You know, he really understood it as as just more than a, a you know like a standard issue curmudgeon. Uh, version of Christmas Carol kind of story. Uh, he really investigated all the layers, you know, beneath. And it also, his experiences were very consistent. You know, when I spoke to him, uh, he knew this person, he knew this guy. He had met people like Tony, or, or maybe he is like Tony, but what he told me was that, you know, I've met, I've met people like that. <laughs> I've, re I've read you and uh, Nick Payne, the screenwriter, and Julian Barnes talking about the ending of, obviously, Julian Barnes talking about the ending of his novel and Nick Payne talking about his inner conversation about what, what the ending should be or within his script and then what the ending you, you, you wanted to leave us with. Um, what if you could talk us through... There's a, I know Julian Barnes certainly feels that um, maybe cinema even demands it or demands more of an optimistic ending or demands more of a, more of a chink of light at the end. Did you feel that? Did you feel that this story, this story could retain its retain its truth and actually suggest that there is there is a there is a new life that this character might yeah. be able to move on to having having experienced this this encounter with his past well 
you know i thought about it look i don't know i don't know the answer to that question exactly but uh i met uh, you know there was this very famous uh, rape and murder case in delhi where this girl a couple of years ago was uh, you know raped in a moving bus and killed it shook the whole country and i met her dad uh cuz i happened to be in delhi and uh, uh you know the i somebody who was a fan of my movie and that you know that thing that issue was very palpable and uh they felt that if i would be able to give them some measure of you know comfort which is not true at all but uh, i had had a chance to meet them and and the father told me something interesting he said well if if you if you have you know i mean the sort of translating it very simplistically but if you are you know alive you have to live and so we had the sense that well you know we've invested in all these characters julian's novel ends at a very poignant question and talks about the great unrest but we are invested too much in the movie and margaret and and you know susie in his present day relationships to leave at the same place that julian does um so we always had a sense that we needed to go on and and nick's uh writing went even a little bit further on than we leave in the movie but i think the ending the process of coming to this end of the movie during the editing process i remember it as being the most fraught with usually nick and me on one side and you know the producers and the financiers and everybody on the other uh most often it was i remember it as being as a very fraught process now is it possible to retain the truth of the material that ends on you know what some would call a pessimistic note but i don't think it was a pessimistic note in the novel it was just a note of self revelation and and i think the movie also has that note of self revelation now do i think it has one too many words in the last voice over yes i do think that now looking back but <clears throat> but you know nick said something very interesting in that in in one of the interviews that we did together was that that you know it's there is the i think what you're talking about when you say this chink of positivity it comes from a lot of commercial pressure mm. because cinema is such a resource intensive medium and uh, people always feel it needs to reach x number of people mm. to you know be a business and be a profitable business so that all of us can work again uh and at the same time that has to be balanced with uh, uh what you feel is the truth mm. uh versus you know what the readers of the book feel is the truth and just all the different versions of truth that exist you know uh but i always find that i had the same experience even in lunchbox where i had complete control um it was a very tiny movie i had written it i had basically got i was a common link between all the producers and they hadn't even met each other many of them um so i had uh, also uh, become really good at divide and rule so i could make producers fight against each other and get my way uh so i think i experienced a version of that in every movie but at the end of the day you know you're just trying to limp to what you think is the truth and sometimes you get there fully and and sometimes you get there most of the way and sometimes you don't get there at all but uh fortunately i i, I think i've had too short a career i feel to to feel as if i've ever not got there at all 
I don't know if I'm answering your question. You I'm, I'm actually you evading it. Fascinating. I'm going to um, turn things over to the audience to ask uh, questions. I'm sure there are questions out there. Um, believe there are microphones on, on the stairs as well. I can see a question over there. If we could bring the microphone to there, is the one over this side? I can get a microphone to as well. There's one just there. Thank you. Thank you. Um, just as I as I listen to the description of of your your thoughts on on the curmudgeon, and and hear about this this experience that you've had with your grandfather. It's it's so inspiring to think of. Um, that process of aging and also of looking back. And I think, I think, however, as I watch this curmudgeon, it's in contrast to the actual feelings it brings up for me. It seems to me that he is so young in everything he does. He seems, and I guess that's the, the amazing things, and that's the story of Benjamin Button, et cetera, et cetera. It's that we become more vulnerable as we get older. We become more open as we get older, I hope. Um, but how... How were you able to infuse that sense of childishness or that um, that wonderment that kind of was in his in his face into that um, and, and direct that into your actors? I felt like that the the older characters, for example, felt much younger than the younger characters. Yeah, you know, I think you make a very good point because well, I always thought of this story as. As uh, you know, I think it was inherent in Julian's writing also, and and in what Nick had done, um, was that this story is always about people who have, or a person who has a deep-seated need that he's not aware of, because you know people are not aware of their needs, and 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 that's why I thought that Nick's invention of the camera shop was very ingenious, because why does Tony even have a camera shop? Because perhaps he's he's hoping that one day Veronica will walk in the door and a different version of the story will happen. But instead of that, he gets that letter from Sarah Ford. Uh, so I thought that somehow that invention of the camera shop had brought that aspect of the story alive. And you know, I agree with you about, about this, because the, the way these characters, and I, I discovered that for myself during the casting in many ways, because it, when we were casting for this movie, and I was trying to figure out who should be the young Tony. And when I met Billy Howell, that's when it struck me that the distance between the young Tony and the old Tony is not that much. Uh, if you look at the, them, the performances, the person, they're essentially the same person. But the distance between the young Veronica and the old Veronica is a lot. You know, the, the young Veronica could have been anyone. She could have been anybody. But when Charlotte Rampling comes on screen, she comes with all her tragedies and triumphs. And perhaps one change I feel like we made from the novel was that we made our Veronica more sort of brighter than the Veronica in the novel, uh, precisely because, you know, she, like what you said, the, the older you get, especially in today's world, the older you get, somehow there is, you know, uh, more of a sense of possibility and less restriction. Um, and in a way, the, the story is about Tony getting rid of some of those restrictions and embracing some possibilities. And, and when you're young, you have the weight of your future life on your shoulders. So I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I, I don't think I have any special wisdom in the topic. But uh, I don't know when I could, what I could garner from my grandfather was you know, various versions of that. But most of the time, he used to just be scratching and banging on about things. So 
I don't know if he left me with any great wisdom, but uh, but yeah, this this whole idea of uh, at what point we embrace uncertain possibilities and uh, is is a very interesting one. It, I guess it's slightly different for everyone. Just just very briefly on Charlotte Rampling there, were you, were you, very, you were very conscious of what the audience would bring to her presence when she mm. appears on that bridge in the middle of the film. Yeah. We were talking before about what books can, can do that cinema can't do and vice versa. I mean, you were, that's a moment mm. there that you felt that as film goes, we bring, some, we bring our memories, we bring our feelings about her to, yeah, to that yeah. moment. Yeah, I mean, see, all her tragedies have been, you know, in public consciousness. Uh, I think her sister committed suicide and she's had a very uh, she's had a lot of triumphs and tragedies in her life that we all know and uh, and she's a very striking figure uh, in our imagination uh, but she's the warmest nicest person and the least intimidating person I've ever met and she's a real joy to work with uh, but somehow our perception or imagination about her is is perhaps what Tony's would have been. She's, you know, can strike people as an intimidating figure if you don't know her. Okay, there's um, a question up there. Is there another one I can set up? There's one down in the corner down here. If we can, we'll go there and then we'll come. I've, um, I've got two questions. The second question is, um, I'm going to ask you first, which is, I really love the lunchbox. I taught at the film festival a few years ago and I thought it was fantastic. Um, and so my second question is going to be, what are you going to do next after that? But the first question is about Nick Payne. Had you seen Constellations before you did this, his play? I read it. It's for, uh, I'm, because there's so many things. When you just said about him think, thinking she's going to come into the camera shop, that Schrodinger's cat idea of, or sliding doors thing, if you like, of uh, keeping on revisiting things until they get them right, is exactly Constellations too, isn't it? It's that whole thing about retreading ground until you get the story that you want, which is kind of what he's trying to do, isn't it? Sure, yeah. yeah Much absolutely. like Constellations. So, it, so had he adapted this because that he saw it uh, parallel with his own work he'd already done? I don't know. I, I can't speak for Nick. I can't speak for Nick. What I do know about the process is that the initial drafts he wrote that I read were much closer to the book. And, um, and then uh, it's, it's kind of what like I would have done if I had adapted it myself because I, I really love the book a lot. And I would have found it very hard to do something other than that. And then as he went along, you know, I think he came along, he, his conscious or, you know, I, I, I read something interesting once that we are all telling the same story over and over. Uh, you know, writers, filmmakers, painters, whoever tells stories. And you're telling the same story over and over and disguising it as different stories. And I think maybe that's very true. That's very true, I think that's what you're saying. I actually just directed a movie, uh, and wrote and directed a movie called Our Souls at Night, uh, which is set in Colorado. Uh, and uh, it is an adaptation of a novel as well, called Our Souls at Night by Kent Haruf. And, and then after that, I'm editing that now, and then after that I'm going to go back home to Bombay and, and make a movie there. Thank you. There's a quite a question in the corner down here. Thanks for asking. My question is about the lateral hand gesture that Sarah makes when they drive off in the car. Mm. What was that about? What was that supposed to mean? Well, I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, I mean, you know, I could tell you, but I think it means what you think it means. Uh, if you don't know what it means, then think about it. Uh, <laughs> but it's something that was there in the book. And... Uh, uh, well, let me pretend you asked me another question and answer that one. Uh, 
and and maybe in the process I'll answer your question too. But uh, uh, our Sarah in the in the in the movie is very different from the Sarah in the book. And actually, I, I was to, I was talking to Emily Mortimer, who plays Sarah Ford, and we were talking about where from where we started our collaboration, where we ended up, and. Uh, because you know the book is so much about in in the book is Tony talking in first person to the reader, and there's a part one in the book that talks about Tony's perception of all these people that we see in the, that you see all these characters Sarah Ford and the brother and and Veronica, and there's a part two of the book where where he learns more and his perception changes. But as a reader, you're tied to his point of view, to his shoes. Now, in a movie, all these characters are flesh and blood in front of you, and you know we, we have to empathize with all of them. Uh, we can't show someone as a blatant seductress, and you know, uh, just because you know you have to love all your characters um, to make a complex piece of work or to aspire to make a complex piece of work. But in in our, in my collaboration with uh, Emily, the conception of Sarah changed. From being a sort of a seductress or someone who's, you know, for some reason trying to hit on all the boyfriends her daughter brings home, uh, to someone who lost her youth. So we made our Sarah much younger than she was in the novel. We gave her a much older husband. Uh, so we made we made some sort of bold decisions to to make both Sarah and Tony, you know, sort of searchers. They both were searching for who they are at that point in their lives. Uh, even though she had two kids, she had a husband, she had a settled life, she was searching. Uh, in the book, it's it's meant to be a flirtatious gesture that wave. Actually, Julian demonstrated it at, it to us, uh, to me and Emily. And uh, and you know, in in the movie, I think you know, I, I I find it hard to answer that kind of question because I feel like things are what what you think they are. I you know, I can't I can't tell you about what. What I was thinking while I was making it, it doesn't matter. It just seems to me that you were emphasizing it. You, you brought it back again at the end. Sure. And it was some kind of a clue that was being given, but I didn't understand what the clue sure. was. Sure, no, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you'll think about it and you'll, you'll get it, I think. I, I'm, I'm very confident, yeah. I trust you. Presumably, by the end, Tony is thinking of her in, in the light of knowledge of Adrian and, and that relationship as well. Sure, yeah. In terms of the, the, the repeated presentation of it. Sure. Um, is there another question I can take, please? There's one over there. Thanks. Hi. Um, I thought it was a wonderful film. Oh, thank um, you. You've talked a lot about performances and the story and so forth, but I'm interested to hear a little bit about the look of the film. It was had a lovely soft quality with, a, with that shallow focus throughout the film. Was that... Intentional to give it a, a, a less of a digital feel, you know, with the usually the pristine detail. This was much softer and gentle all the way through. And likewise, the music was very pushed back and only came in when it seemed to be necessary. So I wondered how your relationship works with the cinematographer and the composer. The composer and I actually have done this is the second movie we did together. Max Richter, he also scored Lunchbox. And uh, what's amazing about Max is that he he really comes from a place of uh, character. And uh, uh, even in Lunchbox, you know, there was an, he, we always had the same instincts about the instrumentation. Um, but I, I pretty much we have an initial conversation and we spot the movie together. 
and then I leave him to it and then I only respond once he's finished the work and then we go back and forth a little bit and it's there because I think we come from the same sort of uh, uh, tonality of work to put it, you know, and that's the best way I have to put it. Uh, and it's a very sort of a relationship which has a lot of shorthand at this point. Um, and with the DOP, I think what, what, we, what we really said was that we set different looks for the past and the present. We use anamorphic lenses for the past, which give that soft quality and, you know, dispersed sense of light and uh, just a significantly different look to the past. And also we worked very hard on the production design of the past to make it, to just use warmer colors in the past. And the present had these spherical lenses and also it, it's quite stark. Uh, and so just to differentiate, I mean, because when you go to these flashbacks, you really need to feel like you've gone somewhere. Um, and because they are long flashbacks, uh, they are kind of non-traditional flashbacks for this kind of movie. Uh, but yet it's a combination of the lenses, the production design uh, for the look. But as far as the music goes, you know, I think Max and I both agreed that the score needed to be sort of dreamlike. Uh, and, and especially as Tony is trying to figure things out and it needs to be a very dreamlike score. But he didn't anticipate going on this journey. He didn't know he needed to learn these things in his life, you know. He, he recognizes those needs as he goes. Uh, but but this dreamlike quality of the score, you know, and, uh, Max interpreted the words dreamlike as this, and I was, I was very happy with that. Who's the composer? Max Richter. Um, is there one final question I can take, please? If, is there one? If not, I just want to begin, uh, end by asking about, you mentioned, sorry, there's the one there. Oh, there's one there, sorry. There's a question down the front. Okay. It's a very simple question, actually. Um, the relationships in both Lunchbox and in this movie are very gentle, uh, very deep, and very passionate at the same time. Are you a romantic? <laughs> this is like couples therapy. <laughs> it reminds me of being in couples therapy. <laughs> this is not going to end well if, <laughs> if I'm going by that experience. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I wish I was, I guess. I wish I was... Uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's. Uh, I. I think I would say I'm quite emotionally avoidant in my personal pre life, and and it's just easier uh, to to do it in in, in movies, I guess. Uh, if you want me to be completely honest, and if you want, you know, write about broadcast it. <laughs> I was just going to end by asking you very... Any very more personal questions? <laughs> <laughs> Could ask a philosophical one. Have you come mm. to terms with not being at the centre of your own story? I won't, I won't ask that. On a very practical level, you mentioned there that Julian Barnes demonstrated that gesture um, in, from the film. And I know you've come tonight from being on stage with, um, with Julian Barnes at the BFI talking about the film as well. So he's obviously involved in as a collaborator on, on some level. What, what was your collaboration like? How would you describe the collaboration between the two of you? Well, uh, when I, I first met him after I got involved in the movie and he invited me over to his place for tea. And uh, he's, wonder, he's a wonderful man. You know, I, 
he gave me tea and then he said something for 10 minutes and I didn't hear a word because I'm sitting there thinking I'm, I'm talking to Julian Burns <laughs> and how great is this? Uh, and then, uh, then he clapped his hands and he said, you know, go ahead and betray me. And he had said the same thing to Nick. So he pretty much left it to us. You know, he, he trusted us to take his work and, uh, and I don't know, ruin it or <laughs> I don't know what, whatever we did with it. Uh, but uh, he was an incredibly generous man. He also recognized that it's a different medium and, you know, movies and books have to be cousins, uh, not siblings. They have to coexist in some way, you know. We had to adapt his work, not copy it, not condense it, uh, just retell it, and, but truly adapt it. So he recognized that. He came to set twice uh, because uh, he's, I mean, he's a very incredibly curious and generous man. But he, the days he came to set, I was, I, I noticed those were the days when we were shooting something that was a big departure from the book. So he was very curious about what we were doing. So when, with Sarah Ford, that how we had transformed her into a different character, or with, you know, Susie, what the character that Michelle Dockery plays is not a character that's mentioned in the book, but does, you don't really meet Susie. For those of you who've read the book probably know this. Uh, you don't really meet Susie in the, in the novel. You just hear that he has a daughter called Susie, but you never see her, you, never, you don't know much about her. So he was very curious about the things that we were doing that were different. And I mean, that just speaks to his generosity. But I wish, I wish there was more of a collaboration, but he just left it to us, really. Excellent. Well, I'm bring things to a close. I mean, thank you very much for the sensible ending. It opens uh, the cinemas next Friday? Next Friday, on yes, the 14th. Thank you very much for being yeah. here tonight. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.